Well, thanks very much, Gary, for a uh, really generous uh, introduction, and uh, thank you all for doing me the honour of being here today. Uh, can I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of the lands on which we, uh, we meet, and pay respects to elders past and present. I want to honour uh, uh, Vice-Chancellor Mark Scott for taking the time to be here today, uh, to uh, uh, the School of Economics for host hosting us, uh, to many former academic colleagues and uh, uh, collaborators, and to uh, the wonderful Gary Barrett for doing me the honour of uh, inviting me here today. I have fond memories of my first year economics class in Merriweather in 1991. In the seat next to me was Justin Wolfers, now a professor at the University of Michigan and co-author of a major first-year textbook. Uh, and last month, I gave a talk to Justin's Econ 101 class at the University of Michigan, reflecting on the power of economics in shaping public policy. Uh, it was a lesson that uh, one of our first-year Sydney University lecturers embodied. Uh, in 1991, he was just another dashing macroeconomics lecturer, but Yanis Varoufakis would go on to enter the Hellenic Parliament and serve as one of the most significant finance ministers in Greek history, attempting to navigate his country through the 2015 debt crisis. Uh, Yanis had quite the influence on his students. Uh, my parliamentary colleague, Chris Bowen, who delivered uh, the Warren Hogan Lecture in 2019, uh, is another student of this era. Uh, at that time, the School of Economics was a mere 69-year-old whippersnapper. It's hard to believe it celebrated 100 years in July. Uh, congratulations, Gary, for your pioneering leadership of the school, uh, as well as your extraordinarily important research on microeconometrics, particularly in our shared passion of inequality. I'd also pay tribute to the late Professor Warren Hogan and acknowledge his friends, former colleagues and family. As Gary said, Warren was a 30-year veteran of this school from 1968 and a significant contributor to economics in Australia and New Zealand. As Tony Aspromorgas put it, Warren was known for his formidable intellect and equally formidable personality. It was none other than Warren Hogan who pointed out an error in the paper of future Nobel Prize winner Robert Solow. It was Hogan who wrote the book with Ivor Pearce on the euro dollar, a market consisting of, of obligations <coughs> denominated in US dollars but issued by non-US banks. Warren Hogan wrote broadly on public policy issues covering finance, international development, immigration, airlines, aged care and more. As Gary said, he served as an advisor to Treasurer Philip Lynch and as director of Westpac, a position he held for 15 years, stood up to Kerry Packer following a bid to take control of the bank. Warren Hogan believed in quantitative rigour and yet when asked about his con contribution to the discipline, he said it was the quality of the school's honours students that stood out the most. And I'd particularly acknowledge the honours students who are here today. My father, Michael Lee, a former academic in the Sydney University Department of Government, spoke warmly of the many conversations he had with Warren Hogan in the Merriweather Tea Room. And he remarked that although, although they came from different academic disciplines, Warren Hogan had a genuine enthusiasm for helping colleagues across the social sciences. A prolific writer and a generous colleague, it's 
fitting that we recognise Warren Hogan's lasting influence on the economics profession. And it's an honour to be back at the University of Sydney delivering the 11th annual Warren Hogan Memorial Lecture. Today, as Warren Hogan might have put it, I want to explore beyond the factory gate and provide a global perspective on economic dynamism. In fact, this is the third in a series of lectures where I've focused on the potential to boost dynamism and put Australia on a faster growth trajectory for decades to come. In August, at the Australian National University, where Professor Hogan earned his PhD, I spoke about the indicators suggesting that Australia has become less competitive. Last month, across campus at a Sydney Ideas event, I spoke about Fred Hilmer and the national competition policy reforms of the 1990s. The biggest competition reforms in Australia in the lifetimes of most of us. I talked about the powerful lessons that they provide for competition reformers today. And now I want to go global. In this talk, I'll draw on three examples of competition reform around the world. The United States and the great uh, trust reforms of the early 1900s. Germany and the post-war breakup of industrial giant IG Farben. And Canada and the long road to competition law. Each of them is a fascinating story because these competition reforms weren't driven by blind ideology but by a practical desire to improve living standards and ensure that economic power is broadly distributed across the community. I'll explore the causes and consequences of each example and their relevance to the Australian economy. An economy in which the business start-up rate and the job switching rate have fallen, while market concentration and markups have risen. First, the Sherman Act in the United States. For this case study, I'll draw largely on US Senator Amy Klobuchar's excellent 2021 book, Antitrust, Taking on Monopoly Power from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age. The Sherman Act was passed in 1890 on the back of a wave of popular concern, particularly in the American Midwest, where anti-monopoly sentiment had always been strong. And the concern was around the rise of trusts. J.D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company epitomised the public concerns. Rockefeller established Standard Oil in Cleveland, Ohio, around the time of the American Civil War. And this was well before the invention of the automobile. And at that time, oil was mostly used to produce kerosene for lighting. It was a necessity of life for American households. Standard Oil expanded aggressively and by 1870 controlled nearly all of the oil refineries in Cleveland. During the following decade, it either acquired competitors or threatened to eliminate them through predatory pricing and similar practices. By 1880, Standard Oil and its associated companies supplied over 90% of all of the kerosene oil in the United States. Then in 1882, Rockefeller did something interesting. He established the Standard Oil Trust. In effect, this was an oil refining, distribution and marketing cartel 
controlled by his dominant Standard Oil Company. Other industries soon followed, with large companies forming monopolistic trusts in sectors such as steel, tobacco, beef, sugar, flour, cotton and agricultural harvesters. The idea of the trusts was quite simple, almost ingenious in its devious brilliance. If two competitors swap shares, their interests are aligned. Instead of fighting to maximise company revenue, their incentives are now to maximise industry revenue. What's clever about that is you don't have to have dodgy meetings in smoke-filled back rooms. Suddenly, with common ownership, competitors aren't particularly keen on stealing market share. Indeed, with common ownership on the rise in Australia today, it's an insight that's pretty relevant, as Adam Triggs and I explored in a paper last year. Popular antipathy towards these 19th century trusts, particularly from farmers, was palpable. Like other monopolies, trusts kept prices high, paid too little to farmers and workers, and made millions by pocketing the difference. This public sentiment led to the Sherman Act, it was passed through the US Congress in 1890 by a vote of 242 to 0 in the House and 52 to 1 in the Senate. The Sherman Act prohibited contracts, combinations or conspiracies that were in restraint of trade, as well as the monopolisation of markets. But then not much happened. It fell to the Department of Justice to enforce the new law and US administrations over the next 15 years proved reluctant to litigate. And that changed in 1901, when following the assassination of President William McKinley, Theodore, or Teddy Roosevelt, became president. Less than a year after taking office, the Department of Justice launched legal action against the Northern Railroads Trust. The case made its way to the Supreme Court, which in 1904 found that Monopolies deprive the public of the advantages that flow from free competition and broke the trust into independent railroads. Teddy Roosevelt was re-elected in 1904 and, buoyed by the success of the railroads case, increased the number of antitrust cases dramatically from 1905. You can see now, given that history of the trusts, why Americans call competition law antitrust law. 1906, the Department of Justice commenced litigation against the Standard Oil Trust. And at this point in the story, you've got, you can't help but make mention of Ida Tarbell, a pioneering investigative journalist who in 1904 wrote the history of the Standard Oil Company. Tarbell highlighted its abuses and misdeeds, particularly those of its owner, John D. Rockefeller. In the years from 1901 to 1914, the US government brought 136 lawsuits against monopolies. The result was a more dynamic and vibrant economy. Government action transformed the industrial landscape and led to a more competitive economy. The US reforms have three big lessons for us today. First, change takes time. Sometimes it isn't enough just to pass legislation. It has to be rigorously enforced. Second, it's vital to engage the public. Ida Tarbell 
Teddy Roosevelt and others were passionate about getting a fair deal for consumers. They argued the case for reform in moral terms as well as economic ones. And indeed that legacy is being carried on today. Uh, if you look at people like Senator Amy Klobuchar and the head of the uh, FTC, Lena Khan, or Tim Wu, who's until recently been in the White House. And third, competition isn't just about consumers, it's also about suppliers. And in the case of the US antitrust reforms, farmers were a vital constituency in pressing for reform. But nothing lasts forever. The 1920s proved to be a high watermark for antitrust enforcement, uh, despite the establishment of the Federal Trade Commission in 1914. Economic depression and war intervened, and antitrust enforcement in the United States didn't take off again until after the Second World War. And it's from this period that my next example comes. The breakup of the German chemical conglomerate IG Farben in 1952. IG Farben was formed in 1925 by a mega merger of several large German chemical companies. At the time, it was the world's largest chemical company and one of the world's most innovative firms, home to three Nobel Prize winners. Notoriously, though, it became a key supporter of the Nazi government, played a key role in the German war effort and was instrumental in the Holocaust. The company used slave labour from the Auschwitz concentration camp an IG Farben subsidiary supplied the Zyklon B poison gas it was used to murder over a million people. One writer described IG Farben as hell's cartel. In the aftermath of World War II, the Allied forces occupying Germany seized IG Farben's assets. Then in 1952, the company was broken into three firms as well as a dozen smaller businesses. Two of the larger companies, BASF and Bayer, are still in existence. And the third, Hoxt, is now a subsidiary of the Sanofi Pharmaceuticals Group. And this is where it gets interesting. A recent paper uh, in the, uh, by uh, 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 economist Poggi has found that IG Farben's post-war breakup increased competition. Innovation strongly increased, measured by the quality-adjusted patent count. Both IG Farben's successor companies and their competitors became more competitive. And the lesson of IG Farben is that more competitors equals more innovation. Even though the company had been quite innovative in the pre-war period, greater diversity in the post-war period led to more new ideas. Australia's competition laws have no broad-based divestiture power and the Australian government isn't planning to change that. But the IG Farben experience is a reminder of why competition authorities today scrutinise mergers to ensure they won't result in a substantial lessening of competition. It's also a reminder of the value of using post-merger analyses to inform the next pre-merger analysis. In effect, Post-merger analyses help competition authorities build a better feedback loop. What's striking about the Farben example is that it relates not to consumers' prices, but to the impact on research and the impact on innovation. And today, that impact on innovation can't be overstated. 
Competition encourages firms to innovate in their business processes and to use their staff more effectively. In competitive industries, companies are forced to ask themselves what they need to do to win market share from their rivals. That might lead to more research and development, the importation of good ideas from overseas, or adopting clever approaches from other industries. Whatever its source, innovation is vital to growth and productivity and living standards for Australians. Finally, let's turn to Canada. As in the United States, popular concerns about business combinations driving up prices led Canada to enact a competition law in 1889, a year before the Sherman Act. But the impact of that law was limited because it relied on somewhat vaguely worded criminal offences, which were difficult to prove in court. That state of affairs remained for decades, despite periodic attempts at reform. The number of cases taken to court remains small. One expert described the old Canadian law as pious anti-monopoly anti posturing that had no effect on anything. Pressure reform started to build in the 1960s and 1970s, but business remained hostile, and it wasn't until 1986 that Canada enacted a new competition law. The new laws retained criminal offences for egregious conduct, such as price fixing, bid rigging and predatory pricing. The drafting of the law was clarified and improved. Importantly, key areas such as mergers and abusive dominance were now covered by civil provisions and a specialist competition tribunal was established. What did all this amount to? Well, it might have taken almost a century, but it meant the Canadian economy was finally protected by a modern competition law. Large companies seeking to merge face detailed scrutiny from the competition regulator. Businesses that engaged in price fixing or abused their dominance were more likely to find themselves in court. Indeed, the new competition tribunal ruled for the Canadian Com Competition Bureau in all four major abusive dominance cases in the decade or so after the reforms commenced although one was a partial victory. The first case under the new provisions involved NutraSweet, which was at the time the world's largest supplier of artificial sweeteners for soft drinks, such as Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi. NutraSweet was found to have engaged in conduct to exclude competing suppliers from the market, for example, by offering buyers substantial price discounts for dis displaying the NutraSweet logo on their packaging. In another important case, the tribunal found that the aggressive acquisitions of smaller competitors by the dominant firm in the Canadian commercial waste market on Vancouver Island were intended to maintain a virtual monopoly. It isn't surprising then that in a 1998 study of how the new laws had fared, one Canadian commentator excitedly exclaimed, Canadian antitrust is back. And the Canadian experience highlights, perhaps even more than the United States, that change takes time and it's vital to persist in the face of opposition from self-interested parties. It also illustrates the benefits of broad legislative provisions that can be directed at a wide range of conduct impeding competition. And while a range of factors may have been at play, it's notable that industry concentration in Canada 
fell significantly in the decade following the 1986 reforms. The regime wasn't perfect, and as in many economies, significant concerns have arisen in recent years about whether it remains effective in light of digital platforms and rising market concentration. Indeed, in this year's budget, Finance Minister Christia Freeland described productivity and innovation as what she called the Achilles heel of the Canadian economy. As an initial step, the Canadian Parliament enacted important reforms to its competition law in June this year, including increasing maximum penalties. The Canadian government's also flagged reforms around access to justice and considering the impact of uncompetitive markets on consumers and workers. And the Canadian government's about to launch a thorough review of the country's Competition Act. In conclusion, competition is essential to boosting living standards and building a resilient economy. The US trust busting example shows change takes time. It needs passion to engage the public and to argue the case to get a fairer deal for consumers and suppliers. The German case study shows that more competitors equals more innovation, proof that regulators around the world are right to closely scrutinise mergers. The Canadian example shows how vital it is to persist with reform efforts in the face of self-interested opposition. Competition is one way to build resilience. A diverse and dynamic economy is also a much more resilient economy. It means we're better able to cope with unexpected shocks and absorb, adapt and solve the challenges of an uncertain world. Our government's committed to reforms that produce a more dynamic, competitive economy. Recently, we passed through Parliament a law that increases the maximum penalty for anti-competitive conduct, bringing Australian penalties in line with those from comparable jurisdictions. We've also banned unfair contract terms, protecting consumers and small businesses from unfair contract terms that allow the more powerful party to unilaterally cancel the contract or to unfairly change prices. The ACCC's new digital platform services inquiry, released on Friday, proposes, proposes major changes to the way that platforms are regulated. We've launched a new consultation on its recommendations. Our focus is on ensuring the, that Australian competition law is fit for purpose, so the economy is fit for the challenges of the future. Professor Hogan devoted his entire professional life to economics and to improving public policy. Since Adam Smith, our profession has promoted the virtues of open and competitive markets. Yet over recent decades, Australian markets have become more concentrated. As I mentioned, markups have risen while startups have fallen, and the share of employees starting a new job has dropped. As history teaches us, competition reforms can change lives for the, for the better delivering growth with fairness. Inspired by the boldness of past competition reformers, we're working to build a more dynamic, more productive economy. Thanks very much.